Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Well, good morning, Harvest. Good morning. It's so good to be with you this morning. Uh, My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, if you have a Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it up to the book of Leviticus, because we're going to be spending some time in Leviticus this morning, specifically in chapter 16. And so you can go ahead and head there. Uh, Most modern readers struggle with the book of Leviticus. They find it strange and difficult to read. Books like Genesis and Exodus are, are great because they give you lots of story. And, and it's engaging. Not all of it is story, but, but enough to keep you interested. But the book of Leviticus feels like an abrupt shift. Even the name sounds weird, right? Like Genesis, that's about beginnings, okay? And, and Exodus, you have Max Exodus, that's about leavings. But what's a Leviticus, right? And on top of that, how does a book about rules and regulations and rituals have anything to do with Jesus. I thought that that's what the Bible was all about. Well, we're going to get there. But first, let me keep moving the story along for us. If you remember, in Genesis 12, God promises that he will make Abraham a great nation and that through him he will bring blessing to all the earth. So God gives Abraham a child who becomes a family who becomes a people. And at the end of Genesis, the people are strangers in the land of Egypt. But it's okay because they're under the provision of Joseph. But then two things happen after Joseph dies. First, the people multiplied greatly. And second, a pharaoh rose up who did not know Joseph. And this new Egyptian king saw the people of Israel as Strangers to fear rather than a neighbor to love. I hope that won't be true of us as we interact with our neighbors, as we interact with the the foreigners among us. And so the people grew greatly, but under Pharaoh, they were oppressed greatly. 400 years, they experienced slavery in Egypt until God raises up this guy named Moses from the tribe of Levi. Levi, Leviticus, see that? Anyway. And God will use Moses to draw his people out. Moses and his brother Aaron will speak on God's behalf before Pharaoh. But every time they make their request to let my people go, Pharaoh refuses. So God sends 10 plagues, and these plagues are like an undoing of God's created order. It's like God is saying, I am more powerful than the gods of Egypt. No thing, no system, no person is beyond my instruction. So humble yourself before me. And Pharaoh each time says, no. Last week, Pastor Billy, our friend from Alpharetta, talked about the 10th plague in particular and the moment and the meal that became the defining celebration for Israel. 
God leads his people out of Egypt and he baptizes them. Yeah, that's right. He baptizes them. At the Red Sea, the God who controls the chaos parts the waters so that the people can pass from death to life. That's the first half of Exodus. In the second half of Exodus and into the book of Leviticus, we have this shift. See, God wants to make a covenant with Israel. He wants them to enter into an exclusive relationship with him. He wants to be their God, and they will be his people. See, just like the people of Israel, God has high aspirations for you. He doesn't just want to bring you out of your worst moments. He wants to make you members of his family. And this is no ordinary family. God's people are to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. This is when you begin to see all this talk about laws and priests and ritual sacrifices and the building of the tabernacle. And this is when you start scratching your head and throwing up your hands and saying, I thought you wanted us to read the Bible. And we do. We do. It's profitable in all that instructs. I promise you. I promise you. So let's do this. When you hear law, think kingdom. When you hear law, think relationship, because God wants to be in a relationship with you, except he gets to define the terms, not you. Now, some of these laws in Leviticus probably sound weird to you, and that's okay. That doesn't mean they're without purpose. They just might not be for you. A couple of years back when I served as a student pastor, we'd go on trips to these camps. And in preparation, we'd have these big meetings where we'd talk about expectations and packing lists and camp rules. Not the most exciting meeting, right? But necessary. Especially, I mean, we're talking about taking teenagers on overnight trips. It's very necessary to lay down the rules. And each camp would have some kind of funny rule that would make someone ask, why is that a rule? And nine times out of 10, the rule that sounds funny and oddly specific is to protect against property damage, right? It's to protect against property damage. No, teenage boy, the camp didn't ban shaving cream because they're against you shaving. They banned shaving cream because they don't want you to have a shaving, cr shaving cream fight in their dorm room. It's happened before, okay? That's what's going on there. So these rules, they might sound weird, but there's purpose to them. There are three types of laws given in Leviticus. I'm just going to run through these really quick, and I think Pastor Peter might spend more time on the law next week. But first are the civil laws. These are laws that govern the nation. These are things like crimes and punishments and things like that. Second are the ceremonial laws. These are the rules that establish the sacrificial system, being clean and unclean and sin offerings and guilt offerings and grain offerings and, and things like that. And we'll, we'll talk about more of that in a, in a moment. Third are the moral laws. These are laws against murder and theft and sexual immorality. These laws reflect the character and values of God. See, God had brought the people out of Egypt, but he still needed to get the Egypt out of the people. They need to learn what it means to be holy as God is holy. And this really starts to tug at the heart 
of the conflict in Leviticus. The, the laws of God are not random. They're meant to teach Israel what it means to be in relationship with him. Do you ever think about this? Do you ever think about what God requires of you? God wants to be in a relationship with you. But what kind of relationship? What's the nature of the relationship? When my wife and I got married, I didn't feel different in that moment. But my life had radically changed. Our relationship had become exclusive in a new way. Our love for one another wasn't some fantasy. It was a commitment. Our lives had become yoked, and it affected everything. I mean, marriage is like this. When you get married, you, you are married even before you learn how to be married. So my friends, so I want to go hang out with my friends, and I'm like, do I need to go ask her for permission? Like, do, like we need to talk about how I spend. And when I want to go buy something, do I need to, do we need, like, just like, do I have to run this by? Like, do we have to talk about all these things? Like, you have to, everything, everything changed. Everything is impacted. God wants to covenant with you, meaning you make binding promises to one another. Are you ready to enter that kind of relationship? See, if we fail to understand the terms, then we'll make a relationship with God something that it is not. We'll say, okay, God, I'll follow your rules as long as you give me what I want. But that is not the purpose of God's law. God doesn't want your empty religion. He desires mercy, not sacrifice. He wants you to love him. Do you understand the weightiness of a relationship with God? Do you understand the cost? Are you willing to make those exclusive kind of promises? He is. He is more than ready and willing. When God becomes personal, when you have a real relationship with him, it changes you. It changes everything about you. This is why when anyone fails to live according to God's law, it's not just a punishable offense. It's deeply personal. But here's the problem. God is holy, and we are not. That is a massive problem that we need to figure out here. So how can a holy God dwell with a sinful people? What gives you the confidence to stand before a holy God? For the book of Leviticus, the answer to that question is wrapped up in the sacrificial system. So we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at Leviticus 16 because it takes us right to the heart of that system. Leviticus 16 is all about the Day of Atonement, which is the one day during the entire year when all the sins of the people could be forgiven. So starting in verse 2, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. 
For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron shall come into the holy place. Okay. It's a lot of terms going on there. So let's, let's just back up for a second. Let's, let's define some of these spaces. See, God rescues the people out of Egypt. He gives them the law. Now they're on their way to the promised land. And as they wander, they're going to wander through the wilderness. God gives them instructions on how to set up their camp. And at the center of this nationwide campout is the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like a portable temple where God would dwell. It was meant to be the meeting space between God and man. But here's the thing. Only the person who matched God's holiness could go in. So the worldview of Leviticus is that God desires to be with us. But because of our sin, we need help. We need help. So, so anyway, God gave the people instructions about how to build the tabernacle. You see, this is a very simple diagram of, of what the tabernacle would have looked like. But, but the tabernacle would generally look like this. This, this uh, tabernacle, and it would be adorned with all of this garden imagery to remind the people of God's presence in the Garden of Eden. And the entrance would always face eastward. It would always face eastward, probably for two reasons. For one, it was anticipatory. The sun rises in the east, and so it's to tell them that the light is going to shine on their darkness. There's hope coming. But then the second is that the people were exiled out of the garden in the east. There's only one way into the courtyard, and to go into it required repentance. It required acknowledging your sin and coming back to God. Now, anyone, who could, anyone could bring sacrifices into this outer courtyard, but God set up the tribe of Levi to establish the priesthood. And so only the Levites could enter the, the tabernacle. Uh, if you go back to the, that second picture, the, the tabernacle had two rooms that were divided by this thick curtain called a veil. And so the first room, that, that bigger room, uh, is called the holy place. That's where you see the tree and, and the table and the altar of incense. The most inner room behind the veil is called the holy of holies. And the holy of holies was like God's throne room. The chest you see inside is called the Ark of the Covenant. And in the Ark of the Covenant, that's where they kept the stone tablets for the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff and, and things like that. On top of the ark was this covering called the mercy seat, as you see here. It wasn't really a chair. It wasn't really a chair. It's called mercy seat. Not, not really a seat, but, but was supposed to be the footstool of God's throne where God's presence would rest. And it had two angels on top to guard the entrance to the presence of God, similar to the angels with the flaming swords keeping Adam and Eve out of the garden. If we go back to the, the, the next slide. Now, now, the main room of the tabernacle would stay busy. Priests would be in and out all the time, practicing rituals, making sacrifices. But that inner room, the holy of holies, no one was allowed to enter except for this one day out of the entire year. 
And even then, only the high priest could enter. No one else. Only one person. And he could do it only on one day out of the whole year. And that was the Day of Atonement. By the way, I, I know that Malaysians love their holidays. So if you're tracking with this, uh, this new calendar that God is setting for them, so far God wants them to celebrate their salvation from Egypt. He wants them to rest weekly and worship him. And now he wants them to observe the day that he will forgive their sins. So it's a pretty good lineup. It's a pretty good lineup. That's what the Day of Atonement is all about, for the forgiveness of sins. In Leviticus 16.29, it says that the observance of this day shall be a statute to you forever, that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work. So they would keep the Sabbath, and they would afflict themselves. Does this sound familiar? Everyone would fast and pray in preparation for this day. And on the day, the high priest, uh, the, the people would watch as the high priest went in on their behalf. See, the high priest served as a, a mediator. He was like a go-between between, between uh, the people and God. And if you notice, as you look through this cha chapter 16, even he was imperfect. Once he was ritually clean, he would take with him a bull and two goats. And verse 6 says that the bull would be a sin offering for himself, to make atonement for himself and his house, because even the high priest needed his sins forgiven. And the two goats would be sin offerings for the people. One goat would be sacrificed, uh, and, and the other would be sent out of the camp. It's sent it out of the camp. We'll, we'll come back to that in a moment. And so as the high priest was in the holy place, he would burn incense and bring it inside the Holy of Holies to form this cloud so that even as he was behind, as he entered into the Holy of Holies, there still remained a barrier between him and the face of God, lest he die. Because for a sinful man to be in the presence of a holy God, he could not stand. He could not live. And he didn't just make atonement for himself and the people. He also had to make Atonement. He had to sprinkle blood over the, the, the spaces in the room to make the, the, the holy spaces pure. And all of this should be telling us at this point that our sin is really that bad. Like, are you starting to pick up? Our sin is really that bad. At the center of Israel's communal life is this brutal reality. Because God is holy and we are sinful, there's separation. God wants to be in relationship with us, but, but we are impure, we are unclean. We don't seek the things of God. And all of these laws and practices are gracious reminders that our sin defiles us. Our sin defiles other people. Our sin even defiles the spaces that we inhabit. Sin creates separation between us and God. And the reason why all of these animal sacrifices are required is an indicator that our sin deserves death. And there is a lot of death. There is a lot of bloodshed. Kind of makes you uncomfortable. Some of you probably have a very, very low view of sin. 
Maybe you've never really taken sin that seriously. Or you assume that you are better than you actually are. Israel was not afforded such a crutch because their sin was unavoidable. You know why? Because God was at the center of their lives. He intentionally made it that way so that they had to constantly think about what it meant to be holy and that they are not. And that was a divine mercy because God wanted them to be broken over their sins so that they would learn to turn to him for help, not to trust in themselves. Maybe you feel competent to manage your sin. Maybe your sin feels manageable to you. So you can wear a mask and you can pretend. But there are a million ways to sin against God. And the world we live in is constantly trying to draw us in and trap us. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's the way you treated a coworker, the way you treated your child or your spouse. Maybe it's the way you looked at another person's failure with contempt and a sense of superiority. I sometimes think about how, how living in a digital age with all of these algorithms and all of this data collection that's going on, everything we do is being recorded. Do you feel comfortable? Do you feel good about that? Just go and look at your, your search history. Do you feel good about that? What if every thought and action of your life was recorded and judged? See, James, James says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And in Romans 3, Paul says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. Sometimes I think back on the days when I first professed faith in Jesus. I think, how did, how did that happen? Like I, was a, I was a teenager, and by worldly standards, a good person. I hadn't done anything that bad. I was a straight-A student compliant to my parents, decent athlete relative to the, the, the talent pool, could fit in with lots of different people, even regularly hung out with Christians. But thanks be to God and to my Savior, Jesus Christ, that he overcame my pride and false sense of self-sufficiency to convict me of my sin so that when I looked upon the cross of Christ, I was totally convinced that it wasn't just an innocent man dying, but that it was my sin that held him there. I think, God, make us brokenhearted over the sin in us, that we would look to you to provide what we could never sustain ourselves. Second, God provides a payment. We are all, all sin is really that bad. What are we to do? God provides a payment. The day of atonement is all about God's provision for sin. Just listen to what God does about your sin. On the day of atonement, the high priest would take two goats from the people. Verse 9 says that one goat would be used as a sin offering. And in verse 10, the goat which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness. Two things God does with sin here. 
First, God provides a substitute. He provides a substitute. On this day, the high priest would take one of the spotless goats and sacrifice him as a sin offering because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions. He does it for all of their sins, all of it. Leviticus 17.11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. See, life is in the blood, and God provides a substitute to shed his blood in our place so that the transgressors might have life. This sacrifice didn't just die instead of them. He died in place of them. On the day of atonement, God provided a substitute to pay the penalty for your sins, for our sins, for their sins. Second, God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. The second goat is the scapegoat. He's the sin bearer. The high priest was to lay his hands on the head of the second goat and confess all the sins and iniquities of the people meaning the goat would bear the responsibility for all their guilt and shame. And only after this would they send the scapegoat outside the camp into the wilderness. They banished him never to return. See, God is cleansing the whole community because he wants us to draw near to him. And for us to draw near, he needs to remove our sin as far as the east is from the west. And so our sin is sent to the furthest places from God so that our sinful souls can be washed clean and brought into his presence again. Third, Jesus fulfills the requirement. You think, what what does this have to do about Jesus? Jesus fulfills it. Maybe some of you wonder, why why do Christians sing so much about the blood and all this? It's the sacrifice. We just sing it. He is the perfect sacrifice. We just sing about it. But do you know why we don't still observe the Day of Atonement like this anymore? It's not because it was unnecessary. You still needed a substitute. You still needed a sin bearer. But it's become obsolete because Jesus fulfilled the requirements. Hebrews 10.1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. And so the system wasn't able to to satisfy the requirements for sin. But we no longer have shadows, but the real thing. See, Jesus is the true and better high priest. In the old system... High priests were sinful, just like everyone else. So they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. But Jesus had no need to bring sacrifices on his behalf because he was without sin. And in the old priestly system, the high priest had to keep working year after year to make the same sacrifices because the goats were an inferior payment. So they never rested, but worked until they died. And once they died, they would be replaced by another. But then that high priest would need to atone for his sins, and he'd need to atone for the sins of the people. And eventually he would die, and it would keep the system going. 
But see, Jesus didn't have to keep laboring because he offered a perfect sacrifice once and for all. And you only need a replacement once the former priest dies. But Jesus died and rose again. We don't need a new high priest because our high priest still lives. And when he ascended to heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father because his priestly work was finished, meaning the offering for sin was satisfied. By the way, I don't, I don't know if you've ever picked up on this, but earlier in the book of Exodus, it includes details about the clothing of the high priest. And he would dress in something like this. If we could put the, the, this picture up, uh, the high priest's garb here. Uh, you have two pictures, same, both high priests. The blue and the purple colors were, were rare, and they were reserved for royalty. And so the high priest in the, the purple and the blue was kind of like this priest king. And the high priest was a, a mediator, remember? So when he went to represent God to the people, he was dressed like a king. But on the one day he was to stand before God on behalf of the people, he was dressed in the all-white linens. Because when a sinful man stands before a holy God, he doesn't have his titles and positions to stand on. He needs to humble himself. But think about this. The amazing thing here is not that a man would humble himself. The amazing thing, the thing that should really leave us speechless is that God became man. See, in the old system, the high priest was only acknowledging what he already was, a sinner in need of grace. But Jesus was God become man. And as our high priest, he shed all of his titles and positions to stand before God as our equal, as a lowly sinner. See, Jesus wasn't just our high priest, but also he was the perfect sacrifice. If you've been following along, our Bible reading plan this past week just took us through Mark's account of the Passion Week. This week leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. Let me just highlight a few things from that week for you. When Jesus stands before Pilate, Pilate pre presents these two men who stand condemned to die. One will be executed and the other he will set free. One is Jesus and the other is an insurrectionist named Barabbas. Bar is Hebrew for son and Abba is Hebrew for, for father. And the people shout, give us Barabbas, because he's the son of the father they wanted. The exchange is made. They have their substitute. And when the people shout to crucify Jesus, Pilate says, why? He's innocent. What has he done? And the people cheer. Now they have their blameless sin offering. And in preparation for his crucifixion, the soldiers beat and mock Jesus. They lay their hands all over him. They heap insults on him. And they lead him out of the city gates to be crucified. It's like they're, they're heaping their sin upon him. All the guilt and shame is going upon Jesus. And at the cross, Jesus died for our sins so that we might have life by his blood. See, he's the substitute. He's the sin bearer. He's the scapegoat. And then watch this. After Jesus breathed his last, 
Mark 15, 38 says, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That veil that separated the people from the presence of God was gone. And then the Sabbath happened. The people were to rest in God's atoning sacrifice because there was nothing left to add. Jesus was the better priest who offered the better sacrifice. He had done it all. And the next day when some of the women went to Jesus' tomb, what do they see? Of course, they see the stone rolled away, but they also see two angels, two cherubim, and they're not guarding the entrance. They're telling the women to go tell others. Jesus is not there. He's out among the people. He starts appearing to people. Why? Because through Jesus' substitution, through his sin bearing on the cross, God exhausted the punishment for our sin on Jesus in our place. And because he has risen, his, satis his sacrifice satisfied the requirement for sin and death so that in Jesus, God and man can dwell together. See, the sacrificial system wasn't wasted. It was a shadow of what was to come. And when the real thing came, when Jesus came, he didn't throw it out. He fulfilled it. So now when the accuser, when the evil one says, you stand condemned, Jesus pleads your case. He says, no, no, no. I have set them free. I paid it all. I bore every sin. And when you start to realize that, he did that for you. It humbles you. It humbles you. You become free to confess your sins. Because you know it doesn't lead to condemnation, but in his name it leads to reconciliation. And ultimately it produces that love and obedience that we've been talking about, that love and obedience to the Father. Pastor J.D. Greer makes this point that in the 17th century, leaders of the Anglican church placed a guy named John Bunyan in prison for preaching the gospel of God's unmerited grace towards sinners. The reasoning, they argued that when the fear of punishment was removed, people would do whatever they wanted. They'd be reckless in sin and feel no guilt about it whatsoever. But Bunyan replied, if people really see that Jesus has removed the fear of punishment from them by taking it into himself, they won't do whatever they want. They'll do whatever he wants. Earlier, I asked you, what gives you confidence to stand before a holy God? I'll tell you what. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus paid for your sin once and for all on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And because of his sacrifice, your debt now says paid in full. But you still have to receive it. You still have to accept it. And you can only do that by humbling yourself. Remember how you enter into the, the courtyard? It requires seeing the hope. It requires faith and repentance. And you can still enter in. 
because it's been paid for you. You can enter into the presence of God. You can do that even today. Today can be your day of atonement. Today can be the day you receive his atoning work and enter into a relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that you, God, you desire to have a relationship with us. God, that you pursue us, you save us, you restore us, you make us new. You give us new life. God, apart from you, we are lost and hopeless. But by the blood of Jesus, we have new life in him. God, we thank you for the work that you have done for us. God, I pray that there are people in this room who would be humbled. God, would you expose the, the, the seriousness and the weightiness of their sin, maybe for the first time. But God, that when they actually start to see that, as it humbles them, it wouldn't lead them to despair, but that they would look at the cross. They would see the hope that they have by his blood. And that they would know, they would believe, they would just deep within their souls, they would trust that you have done it all. And that through him, they have a living hope. God, our hope is in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And may we find him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.